and welcome to Catastrophe Cast. This is Walter, and today's podcast is actually about an aviation incident that, in the grand scheme of things, was relatively small. But like in our last podcast, the Eastwind Flight 517, this incident actually had huge repercussions throughout the aviation history. What I'm talking about, of course, is Air Canada Flight 797 from June 2nd, 1983. Now, if you were alive and traveling back in the 1980s, you may remember that back then you could actually still smoke on airplanes. Air Canada was no different. Up until 1995, I believe it was, smoking was actually still allowed on airplanes. So with the average plane being quite old these days, you actually will probably still see ashtrays in, you know, the lav bathrooms and sometimes even in the armrests of your airplane. So that's why that's still there. Air Canada 797 was a flight operated on a DC-9. And the DC-9, of course, is the older relative to the MD-80, which is also the older relative to the Boeing 717. Those flights still operate today, and as a matter of fact, Delta actually just got rid of their last DC-9, which was at least 40 years old, uh, about a year ago. So this flight started out just normally, just like any other flight. It left Dallas-Fort Worth at 4.20 p.m. Dallas time, and it was headed for Toronto. About an hour in, dinner service had been completed. And, of course, this is back in the 80s when there actually was still meal service throughout the plane. So about an hour in, dinner service was completed, and people were settling in for the rest of the flight to Toronto. At 6.51 the pilots actually heard what was they said was a popping sound and a popping sound in the cockpit usually ended up being the circuit breakers seeing as how they had just served dinner of course they figured okay well the circuit breakers sometimes go after you know dinner because people get up and go to the bathroom and some people will flush too much or whatever and the circuits themselves overheat so they're actually quite used to it. It's It was something that was, you know, quite well documented and, and happened quite a lot. So they basically thought nothing of it. And they tried to reset the circuit breakers after a minute, but they didn't go. So they waited a few more minutes and tried resetting them again. Now, that happened at 6.59 p.m. One minute later, that was the first report of the smell of smoke, an acrid smell, to the cabin crew. It was someone who was sitting in the back of the plane near the labs, and they reported, hey, there's there's this weird odor. What is going on? A flight attendant actually went to investigate, and when she opened the door, she was basically greeted with just a ton of acrid, thick smoke. So she actually ordered another flight attendant to put the fire out with a fire extinguisher while she went up to the cockpit and reported it. A third flight attendant, because there were three flight attendants total on board, actually was directed to start getting passengers to move forward and away from the rear lav. Now, the DC-9 could carry 101 passengers and 
on this particular plane there were 41 so it wasn't that hard to actually get people to move forward there were plenty of seats up front now when you hark back to the 80s fires in the labs were actually somewhat common and that's because of course people like i said could smoke on planes and and they even could smoke in the bathrooms a lot of people would actually just toss their cigarette in the trash and that was a commonplace occurrence and people went through and did that and it caused a lot of fires in the labs but it typically wasn't a huge deal it was something that could be dealt with quickly disposed of and taken care of of course this flight since we're talking about it is very very different so after the flight attendant uh, exhausted a fire extinguisher the co-pilot got up and went to check on the situation to see what was going on and he reported back at 7.04 p.m. Now remember this started at 6.51 that even though he tried to go and check on the on the lab to see what was going on he was actually turned back because of a thick thick smoke that he found when he opened the door but because the flight attendant had actually used an entire fire extinguisher, he told the captain that he thought the fire was probably out, you know, because, hey, if you're going to empty an entire CO2 fire extinguisher into a, an area that you think is on fire, it's probably out. So almost as soon as the co-pilot settled back in, there was the beginning of a cascade of a bunch of incidents. Passengers started reporting smoke again coming from the back of the plane, and in the cockpit, the master circuit breaker went off. That is, the, the master circuit breaker, just as it sounds, controls almost everything in the plane when it has to do with electrical equipment. As soon as that master breaker went off, there was another, it was basically just a continual cascade of failures including a loss of the PA system so the pilots actually had no way to talk to the cabin crew unless the cabin crew had opened the cockpit door and they could talk back and forth usually of course pilots and, and cabin crew talk over the earphone but the worst part about losing that master circuit breaker was that the airplane controls themselves which operate normally really smoothly by the means of electricity were now basically almost unusable though both pilots actually were able to go through and very very exhaustingly manage to move the different systems while on the airplane by hand the co-pilot actually said afterward that he after landing that he was actually exhausted and he he it was hard for him to move because he was so exhausted by all the physical work that had to be done. So the cabin crew, even though there was no PA, they had to know that they were descending because when you're on an airplane you can always tell when a plane is, is descending. And they actually went through and instructed the passengers on how to use the emergency overwing exits. Now this may be something that everybody today is usually questioned, you know, how to use the exit, yada yada yada. Back in the 1980s, this actually wasn't something that was taking the time to actually go over. People actually just sat in the emergency exit rows and didn't necessarily know what to do in the case of emergency. 
There was no disqualification for age or if you were uh, not English speaking, like all the American airlines do right now. Um, if you were disabled, you can sit there just fine. If you needed a seatbelt extender, you could sit there just fine. None of that would, would of course, work today. But back then, it was just another seat, maybe with a few extra inches of a legroom. So that's how people treated it instead of the important seats that they truly, truly are. Another thing that was also commonplace today that back then just didn't really exist was an acute visual and tactile clue that could lead a passenger in a smoke-filled cabin to an emergency exit. If you think to the safety briefings that are done these days, part of it is you'll notice uh, floor track lighting that will lead you to an exit, and there are every exit is marked with an exit sign. Well, you know, none of that actually was standard back then. So back when this incident occurred, it was harder to actually figure out where the emergency exits were and to be able to get out. There are actually even bumps on the overhead bins to tell you when you've made it to the exit road. So if you are walking through a darkened cabin, you can run your hands along the overhead bins and there should be bumps that will actually tell you that you've made it to the exit row. None of this really existed back in the 1980s because it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a priority. Now, considering the, that the first hint of an issue was at 6.51 p.m., the pilots actually landed 29 minutes later at 7.20 p.m. That in itself is miraculous since they were, I believe, at 37,000 feet, 33,000 or 37,000 feet. They landed at Cincinnati Northern Kentucky Airport. Even though the pilots could barely see their controls, they managed to land. The sense of urgency was so strong to stop the plane once it was actually on the runway that the pilots, by braking so hard, actually blew four tires. Now, when they touched down, and it, it gets a little iffy when you read through this, but from what I can tell, when they touched down, there were at least 39 of 41 passengers alive. There's a quote from a passenger saying, five minutes before landing, we couldn't see anything in the plane for the smoke. It was the kind of situation where you expected someone to scream, but none did. That itself right there is just an eerie, eerie quote. And especially, like I said, when you consider there were at least 39 to 41 passengers alive. Now that the plane is on the ground, here's where things went from bad to worse. Because the fire hadn't actually been fully extinguished, it actually, you know, was still alive, even smoldering in, in the airplane. When those emergency exits were opened up, it was, if you think of a, a fire in a, in a building and you open up the door, the fresh oxygen comes in and there's a backflash, I believe it's called. Well, that's exactly what happened here on the plane. All that fresh air that came in when the emergency exits opened caused a flash fire. There were 46 people on the plane, 41 passengers, and 5 crew. Now, none of the crew sustained injuries beyond uh, very, very, very small injuries, while 23 of the 41 passengers died. 
I mean, that really tells us that probably about 21 people died because of the flash fire. So they made it all the way to the ground and got to the door open and then died. There's actually a map that I will post on catastrophecast.com that shows you where passengers lived and where passengers died. And I say that at least 21 passengers had made it you know, 23 of the 23 who died, 21 were most likely alive because when they actually went through and had moved people forward, there were two people that were missed. So when they landed, there were two people that were probably dead, possibly dead, but probably dead, sitting in the back next to the lab or closer to the lab than anyone else. So those people were kind of missed and unfortunately so they were probably the first to die so of the 41 passengers 23 of which died of the surviving passengers there was actually surprisingly little injury there were three that actually did have serious injuries 13 had relatively minor injuries and two were completely unharmed another quote from a surviving passenger said it was almost like anybody who got out of there had nothing wrong with them most of the dead were actually killed, as it, of course, autopsy showed, by smoke inhalation and burns because their bodies were mostly burned beyond recognition. The autopsies showed that the bodies contained high levels of deadly chemicals like cyanide and carbon monoxide. So what happened? Even though this was, of course, a Canadian plane, the incident was investigated by the NTSB here in America. The NTSB actually found that the issues started earlier than either of the pilots thought because based on the cockpit voice recorder at 6.48 p.m., there were eight distinct episodes of electrical arcing. They could hear it on the cockpit voice recorders, even though the pilots weren't able to hear it. So neither pilots heard, but the fires actually started three minutes beforehand. Most likely, if the pilots knew that it was electrical arcing and not just what they thought it was, which was, you know, a bathroom lav circuit overheating, they would have gotten the plane down a lot faster. But, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So they did the best with the situation that they had. Investigators were actually never able to figure out which of the wires on the airplane caused the short circuit and the fire, but at least they were able to determine that it was electrical arcing that caused the fire and not a cigarette. As I mentioned, this is actually a notable incident because it's notable for the recommendations that came after it and other aircraft incidents that have happened in the similar time frame with cabin fires. First off, the NTSB asked the FAA to expedite the requirement for smoke detectors in airplane laboratories. Now, even though this was an electrical arcing issue, the fact that they were going to use smoke detectors in airplane laboratories was very, very important. Now, second and related to that, the FAA was asked to expedite the installation of automatic fire extinguishers in laboratory trash cans so that if there was an incident where somebody put their cigarette in the trash instead of 
you know, wetting it or whatever back then, that it wouldn't start a fire. And if it did start a fire, that it would automatically be put out. Those were the mandatory recommendations, basically, that were made to the FAA. But the NTSB actually went further and told American carriers, so you notice this wouldn't actually apply to Air Canada, but where air carriers go in the United States, most other carriers follow. The NTSB told the FAA that they need to have carriers perform aggressive fire training and evacuation procedures because until these this incident and other incidents like it at the time fires and evacuations were not as trained into the people and of course trained into the passengers when you think about evacuation procedures these days of course if you sit in the exit row on an airplane you're going to hear are you willing and able to help out but do you actually know the actual procedures for getting out of an airplane if there's an incident? I can actually say that I know them, but that's actually because a Frontier flight attendant actually took the time on multiple flights that I was on. And I've only seen uh, Frontier do this, but they actually took the time to explain the entire situation. What you actually do is if like on the Airbus, like Frontier Flies or other, you know, like the Boeing 737, where it's three and three, three passengers on the left, three passengers on the right. The actual situation, if you're interested, is the person at the window opens the window exit and disposes of it, or it just flips up like on, or on Boeing 737s do now. And they go out through the exit, slide down the wing, and they are down on the ground. The person in the middle seat goes through the exit and stands on the wing, and the person at the aisle stands at the aisle and directs people out, where the person in the middle seat directs them down the wing, and the person who is at the window seat urges that person to move on and away from the airplane. As it sits, that aisle person in the exit row is the last is one of the last people behind the crew to supposed to get off the plane. So window person goes out down to the bottom. Middle person goes out, stands on the wing. The aisle person directs people out until everyone's out. Aisle person goes out. They help the middle person get down. And then the aisle person gets down and all three of those passengers go away from the airplane. Hey, if you take nothing else away from this, at least now you know the way to get off of an airplane in the case of an emergency, if you're sitting in the exit row, what your duties truly, truly are. And like I said, I've only had Frontier flight attendants do this, tell me the entire story. I've not actually seen it on other airlines. Some airlines do better than others. Some others, you know, they will tell you a little bit more about it. Some others would just want to roll their eyes and make sure that you say yes when you were supposed to say yes, and that's, being, that's done with it. So this whole procedure on getting people to understand the rights and responsibilities of sitting in an exit row, this actually is in part due to this accident because the NTSB suggested instructing passengers on how to operate the emergency exits. Standard now, not standard back 
in the days of Air Canada Flight 797. There are other recommendations that actually came out from the FEA, like the use of fire blocking materials that did not cause caustic chemicals or you know, put off caustic chemicals when they interacted with, with fire and flames. And there were other emergency changes that were suggested to be needed, like adding the track lighting, the exit signs, and the raised markings that mark the exits like we have today. These all came out of Air Canada Flight 797 and others like it. Now, to my knowledge, American Airlines actually is one of the only airlines that I know of that uses these raised markings. If anyone, and I've, I've been on all the major carriers here in the United States over you know, the last 20 years of being a consultant, if any other airline does, I would really, really like to know because I think that that is very, very important. In a smoke-filled cabin, you're going to need to use a tactile clue to be able to get to the emergency exit if you cannot see the signs. Now, the curious thing about this incident is after a big incident like this, and you know this was a loss of life, and to my knowledge, this was the last big loss of life by Air Canada, an airline will actually go through and they will retire that flight number. They will not use it anymore. Well, when I was doing research for this podcast, I actually, if you go to Google and you type in Air Canada 797, you'll actually see on the left-hand side, depending on how your Google is set up, but on your left-hand side, you'll actually see that Air Canada 797 is a flight from Montreal to Los Angeles, and it's due in at X time. On the right-hand side, at least for me, it actually brings up the information about Air Canada 797 from June 2nd, 1983. So why Air Canada chose not to retire this flight number is really, it's just a curious thing to me. And beyond that, I'm in the loss of life, those, those 23 passengers that died, one of them was a Canadian songwriter who wrote what I have been told is the unofficial Canadian anthem, a song called Northwest Passage. He actually died at the age of 33 in this crash. So it's a part of Canadian heritage that actually died on that day. So that's it. Thank you for downloading and listening to Air Canada 797 and what happened. I do want to apologize and give you a little explanation as to what has taken me so long to keep podcasting. I wrote a book. Actually, I've published one book, but it has nothing to do with, uh, with actually air crashes or catastrophes. It's actually a, a book that has to do with being a traveling consultant. So it's, a, it's along the same path. And it actually does touch a tiny, tiny bit on incidents and accidents. But for the most part, it's, it's kind of, you know, how do you, how you manage your life as a, as a new consultant. So that's kind of what has taken up the last year of my life. Be on the lookout. There will be new things coming from Catastrophe Cast very soon. We actually have, uh, if I'm working on someone 
to be a guest speaker so that we can we just have to find the right subject for us both to to be able to talk about and i've actually been reached out to by a plane crash survivor it's someone who was on north central airlines flight 975 which is catastrophe cast podcast number 14 so hopefully we will hear back from them and they will get their stuff ready for us to be able to publish and then we'll maybe do a little refresher on podcast 14. And with that, I want to say thanks for listening. And in closing, to help honor those who lost their lives on Flight 797, I'm actually going to close instead of with my regular music with a little bit from the famous song Northwest Passage by the band Show of Hands. Thanks for listening. Uh, for just one time, I would take the Northwest Passage to find the hand of Franklin reaching for the Beaufort Sea, tracing one warm line through a land so wild and savage, and make a Northwest Passage to.